0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. There are so many parts of the world that are dealing with a lack of water, and because of that... So many parts of our communities are affected as well. Journalist, journalist Judith Schwartz is tackling these issues in her latest book, Water in Plain Sight, which also looks at the ways we can help alleviate some of the problems. And Judith joins us on the show right now. Judith, welcome.
1: Thanks so much, Dan.
0: Thank you. Great to have you on the show. Uh, so, so we are literally, I guess, the greatest offenders to making this world better and, and less thirsty, uh, even the ground itself.
1: Oh, um, yeah, so, so obviously, you know, as you mentioned, we have many challenges with water. It seems like, you know, every time you turn around, there's somewhere there's a drought, there's a, there's a flood, there are wildfires, which has to do with dehydration of the, you know, the, the drying out of landscapes. And, but it doesn't have to be this way. Right. So a, a lot has to do with how we think about water and i think that we can broaden out our our water literacy so when we think about water in a kind, as a kind of static resource as you know like there's this amount of water and you get some and i get some that kind of leaves us stuck right. but once we understand how water moves across our landscapes and actually moves acro- through the atmosphere then we see that there are many opportunities to make better use of the water
0: you, you mentioned uh, about the fact that also and and it's been mentioned I think in a variety of stories as well that that water in some parts of the world ends up being something that people literally fight over uh, and and it becomes a, a you know physical confrontation at times
1: yeah, yeah, and again, I would reiter- reiterate that it doesn't have to be this way, yeah. and you know I talk to people about Um, experts on on water about the prospect of water wars and what they said is that just as often the need to uh, you know the lack of water often creates more opportunities for people to work together right but the important thing here that I, that for us to recognize, and I don't think that we do this enough, is the connection between water and our landscapes. So we're continually focused on water that comes down from the sky. You know, our, our eyes are fixed to the rain gauge when we're thinking about how much water we, we have and whether we, whether we get enough. But, Equally, if not more important, is what happens to that water when it hits the ground and whether we're able to hold it in the landscape. And you mentioned water conflicts. It's really important to know that most, most conflict areas around the world are in what we could call seasonal drylands. Right. So um, understanding how to work better with those landscapes is really, really key. So, you know, the unspoken word here... That I think we could talk about more is desertification, which is basically the lack of land function, the loss of land function, and we can see that on the west coast too. Right. Because when we, you know, when you know the California drought goes in the news, goes out of the news, and and uh, um, continually these days. But what we don't talk about is land degradation, and that's a really, really big part of what we're dealing with. In
0: California, yeah, I was going to say California is is it it obviously has been kind of the, for lack of a better term, the poster child of uh, of water usage and, and maybe not using it properly uh, over the last uh, what decade, maybe decade and a half, even. Uh, so, uh, what are some of the things there in California specifically uh, that are being missed and not being handled
1: properly? Well, okay, so uh, uh, well, one thing is that when that. All right, cities. So when we built cities, they, you know, we as in humanity, um, the way that we looked at water was as a nuisance. So cities are built so that our our built environments, our cities and suburbs are built so that water sluices away. We get rid of water as quickly as possible. But That's problematic on many levels. I mean, for one, you know, you're losing that resource. And then also when, you know, when you get rain in a city like Los Angeles, then the water sluices away and also carries along with it pollutants. So finding ways to hold on to the water. I mean, there are many ways to do that. One is through water harvesting. And there are, you know, lots of different models. There's a fellow who's um, really kind of one of the experts in this. His name is Brad Lancaster. And he has created a veritable oasis in, um, in Tucson, Arizona. Right. And he has written about different, you know, approaches to water harvesting. But another, another way to look at it, and, you know, this is what to me is very exciting, is to ask the question in, you know, when these landscapes were fun- functioning what were the different factors and you know i mean los angeles we would never think of of that area as a wetland area with you know like deltas right but that's how it was and so (laughs) by you know bringing back Kind of, um, you know, vegetation at the coast, and I think there are some areas that are doing this, and certainly one place, one project that's on, that's going on now is the L.A. River, which right now, you know, river in quotes, it's a concrete. <laughs> that's channel. exactly
0: right. Yes, and has been that way for for many years. Correct.
1: Yeah, since the '30s. And, or maybe in some areas even before, but what they're doing is that they are creating a linear park. And in certain areas, I mean, it's a huge, it's, you know, many, many, many miles long. So um, it's a huge, huge project, but they're creating, um, you know, adding vegetation and, you know, restoring the, si- the, the banks so that it's beautiful, it's available for recreation, right. and it retains water.
0: We're talking uh, on the phone. We're joined by uh, Judith Schwartz, uh, who has uh, authored the book Water in Plain Sight. Uh, your comments are welcome at 844-Wharton, is the number to give us a call. What was it that, that really stirred your want to do a book about this topic?
1: Well, just before this, I wrote a book about soil. Okay, so there were two things that that you know, kind of hit me. It made me feel like I wasn't able to let this material go. One was just, as I said, that that land has been missing in our discussions about water. Okay, so that's one thing. And then the other thing is that in a chapter that I wrote called The Return of Lost Water, I spoke with these um, interesting Eastern Europeans who have written a book called water for the recovery of the climate and that just the the connection between water and climate totally blew me away right Be, because when we hear about the connection yes we understand that there's a connection it always goes in one direction it's always that climate change will put added stress on water sources throughout the world. And, of course, this is true and very concerning. But what we don't talk about is the effect that water has on climate. And this also opens up tremendous opportunities once we start to understand this.
0: You use the, uh, use the term water footprint, uh, which I guess is kind of similar to, to what has been used, especially the last few years, where people and companies need to think about their carbon footprint.
1: Yes, and I think that the water footprint concept is a really, really good educational tool, basically, to encourage people to think about the water that is being used for the food that they buy, the clothes that they, that they buy and wear, and, you know, and, and the energy that they use, depending on your energy sources in your locality. Mm-hmm. I think it's very, very useful, but it can be deceptive. And I'll I'll tell you why. Mm-hmm. So, um, one of the one of the you know factoids in the water footprint you know um, you know library you know bank of of data mm-hmm. is that a hamburger costs or costs uses like some extraordinary you know if you eat a hamburger that means that you have used the equivalent of x number of gallons and then you look at that and you huh. think oh my gosh I've used this up. But what, what is not in, included in that discussion is the way that the m- meat was sourced. So you actually could, and I make it a point to do this whenever I can, you actually could ha- eat meat that is restoring the planet, you know, restoring huh. soil and therefore holding more water. So I might need to backtrack and explain that a little yeah, bit.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, what's the difference between the two?
1: Okay. So in our industrial meat industry, water is wasted. Okay. So you're using water to grow the grain. You're using, you're giving water to animals who are often being kept. Maybe they're they're, they're, at, the, at the end of their lives, they're in these feedlots, and these feedlots are, are creating methane. And then, because of all the, you know, the, the crampedness of the animals, and you need a lot of water to clean that out. You know, it's very, very, and it's very energy intensive. Intensive, it's very wasteful on many levels, and that's a problem. However, there is something called restorative grazing, holistic plan grazing, in which livestock. Serve that, that um, are managed in a way that they that they are restoring the land mm-hmm. and building soil and soil is really important. I'll get I'll get back to soil, but they're they're building soil. They're they're grazing on natural pasture. They're so their 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 actions on the land help improve the land, and by improving the land, the land holds much more more water, and I've been to places, visited places, where rivers are coming back, where um, I've been to places, actually, I have eaten meat, I will say, in Mexico, where they are managing land so as to restore the water cycle, but also to restore habitat for endangered migratory grassland birds. Right. So, so you you can you can improve the landscape by managing animals in a particular way.
0: So part of this then it, it does fall on people like the the farmers and the ranchers uh, to to one have this understanding and two uh, kind of implement these types of, of beliefs and policies so that you can regenerate the the land and be able to kind of uh, to build back up the, the water supplies.
1: And many ranchers, uh, I know, okay, they're they're different scenarios, so I'll speak to them um, separately. Many ranchers are motivated to do so because, for economic reasons, because they do much better when the land is healthier. Right. So so in the ranching community, this is happening more and more. Um, In the farming community, again, they will do better when they are working more effectively with the water cycle, and there are a lot of nuances in that in, in that area too. In that, a lot of the um, agricultural inputs actually undermine the biological system that allows plants to take up water effectively. You know, so so there's like a whole other la- layer there. But the challenge in farming is that there are a lot of financial incentives, and the the farm bills are so convoluted that some farmers are rewarded for practices that aren't helpful to anybody really. Mm -hmm. So that's where it gets complicated.
0: And that's a hard thing for. Uh, well, it shouldn't be a hard thing for farmers to be able to separate the two, but uh, unfortunately, I guess with, uh, with with the way that finance plays itself out and has played itself out with the with the farming sector over the last several decades, uh, they unfortunately are are led basically to to make one choice over the other. Correct.
1: Yes. Yeah. That is true. And then you get kind of caught into a system. And once you've so many farmers, you know, gee, it isn't working. Well, the person says that if we add this input, it will be better. You know, so it's hard to kind of break free of that. And then also there's the matter of scale. Right. So that the people making this, because because there's been an incentive for farms to get so large. And then, you know, they're not as connected to the land. But I have, you know, I have worked with many farmers who are making a priority to... um you know, to restore the land because they do see that 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 is their their bank essentially. The soil, healthy soil, is their is their wealth. You
0: mentioned and, you yeah. mentioned you mentioned going to Mexico and and seeing uh, these types of philosophies uh, play out uh, that that obviously help uh, with uh, the level of water uh, in that country. Uh, is this going on in, in in a lot of other countries? And and is it a case where we here in the United States are, are a little bit behind uh, behind on this process?
1: Yeah, I wouldn't say that we're behind. I okay. would say that just a lot of interest in this is bubbling up all over the world. Right. And I did go to Africa. I went to Zimbabwe, and that's where Alan Savory, who's the fellow that developed Holistic Plan Grazing, it's a program, uh, kind of a set of Decisions, a framework called um, holistic management. And that is where I saw tremendous, tremendous change, um, improvements. And one thing that really spoke to me was I had the opportunity to go visit some rural villages where they were, that the Africa Center for Holistic Management was working with. And these people just, they were saying that they have been able to get off food aid because Hmm. they had more. Command over the water; they had more access to water, um, and that was from the animal impact.
0: And that ends up being a, a rather significant, I would think, economic impact on on those countries. Correct?
1: Um, yeah, when the scale is large enough, right? I, I don't. I mean, I, I mean, I think to even try to make sense of the Zimbabwean economy would probably not be a productive right. exercise.
0: Right? Exactly. Uh, but, but
1: yes. Certainly.
0: Yeah, we're joined uh, by uh, Judith Schwartz, who's the author of the book Water in Plain Sight. You're more than welcome to join in at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. Uh, it, we mentioned California, uh, and obviously, as we said, that's kind of been a, a very uh, focused area uh, on water usage and, and water supply uh, in this country. But this is something that, that is kind of playing out in a lot of states around the United States, Correct.
1: Oh, absolutely! Yeah. Um, one thing that you said—you said—are we behind in the U.S.? I will say that that one one so one opportunity that is, that has been missed so far is that there's an international initiative that has been. I was at COP21 in Paris, yep. um, the climate conference, yep. and. Um, There's a growing movement internationally around regenerative agriculture. Basically, as you said, it kind of lifts all boats. (laughs) It helps everybody, and it helps um, restore ecosystems and all those co-benefits and all that. And there's an initiative called the 4 per 1,000, which has been launched by the the French agricultural ministry and that is so that's a commitment to build carbon in the soil 0.4% every year and after 5 years that will basic that basically kind of uh, offsets carbon emissions okay but that's uh, i don't have the figures in front of me but that's the basic that's the basic idea forgive right. me if i'm missing a, a nuance there but that has been signed by many, many countries. It's been signed by Mexico and Canada, are you know close neighbors, but it has not yet. It has not been signed by the U.S. And that really shifts the incentives for for farmers and ranchers, for people who work the land. So I just think that's something um, that we might want to explore a little bit more
0: you mentioned uh, the term biodiversity before uh, go further into exactly what that is and and how that all plays into this into
1: this process okay so biodiversity is the you know the the scope of the species and the richness of the wildlife in a particular area and um and and plant life you know animal insect plant life mm-hmm. so um it certainly makes and what i experienced there was was really interesting too in that it certainly makes sense that when you have a healthy water cycle, that that will support a greater number and variety of species. However, what I also found was that having greater biodiversity helped to support the water cycle. And that was kind of interesting. So just for an example, you mentioned California. We might ask, what kept what kept the water cycle functioning before we came in and we chopped down trees and plowed up land, et cetera, and built cities? And one answer was beavers. So, (laughs) I mean, California had beavers throughout much of the state, and beavers are a keystone species. They're known as nature's engineers, and what they do is they create, they build dams, and those dams hold water, and the way that as water filters through and um, creates kind of very rich soil, and it, it yeah it it creates wetlands, and it allows water it holds they hold water in the landscape. So um, I know actually um, you know in talking about California the the driest. State in our country is Nevada, mm. and there are projects in Nevada going on right now, in which by inviting beavers back onto the landscape, they actually, um, you know, they worked started with ranchers um, restoring the soil, and the beavers came, and now they have much more water. They have rivers and streams that are flowing year round that until recently hadn't. So if you can do that in Nevada in the driest state because basically you get snow that falls from the Sierras and then it gets held in the soil or it flows away.
0: And and seemingly the same thing could very well happen in California because you're taking about the same type of of demographic, at least there where you have the, the the snow up in the, in the high elevations that that's coming down uh, normally to, uh, to the lower, uh, to the lower areas.
1: Absolutely, and in California, there is now through the, an organization. Let me see if I get the threat right. Um, Occidental Arts and Ecology Center. They right. have their water institute has a bring back the beaver campaign. <laughs> so there are many beaver fans out there. There are also fans of prairie dogs and dung beetles and other species that are actually. Very pivotal to to the to a functioning water cycle.
0: I, I was going to ask you if there are other animals that, that that play an important role in this process, and obviously there are there are several that could be factors.
1: Oh yeah yeah yeah. Prairie dogs they cre- they create little holes, and that allows water to filter through. See, you want to you want water to linger on the landscape. Sure, because, yeah. So it seeps in. It's it's held. It creates underground water stores. Uh, and also through those biological processes, the water gets cleansed, too.
0: Right. Eight four four nine four two seven eight six six is the number to give us a call. Uh, is this, uh, this is a process that is going to take a little time, unfortunately, to, to improve itself, but it's one that has to be discussed and, and probably at some, some rather high levels at, at this point right now in order to make some of these changes happen, Correct.
1: Yeah, that would be great. However, change often happens, well, in this case, literally from the ground up. Yeah. And these changes can happen very, very quickly. So the ranchers that I visited in Mexico that are working with, with bird co- conservation organizations, I mean, that's a partnership that you wouldn't expect to happen. But um, one fellow, his name is Alejandro Carrillo, because... The Chihuahua area of Mexico does get a good, you know, a decent amount of rain. Mm-hmm. He was able to transform his ranch within a couple of years. That's right. That. Because once you get the grass growing, then the birds show up. and sure. Nature wants to be complex. And so when you give nature a little bit of a boost, yep. it responds beautifully.
0: Judith, thank you very much for coming on the show. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you and all the best with the book. Thank you again. Thank you. You got it. Judith Schwartz. The book is Water in Plain Sight. It's out in bookstores and online right now. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.